Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin Ware here. Electronically Yours, as always. Today's guest is somebody whose voice I've admired for a very long time. It's Marcella Detroit, best known, of course, for Shakespeare's sister, having the voice of an angel with an extremely high, almost whistle tone soprano. She's a very nice person. I've never met her before. And I kind of asked her out of the blue because she posted a comment on my uh, on my um, Facebook page, I think. I said, oh, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to interview you. So we did. And she is an interesting person. There's no doubt about that. She's, you know, fun facts. She co-wrote Lay Down Sally with Eric Clapton. Who knew? Um, she's worked with Alice Cooper, Robin Gibb, Jimmy Ruffin you know loads of people she was on pop star to opera star didn't even get around to talking about that um she wrote for Char- charlotte church uh she was on live aid worked with george duke bet midler Aretha franklin elton john uh i mean just amazing and their latest their their kind of comeback ep which came out in 2019 i really like by the way um right uh, shakespeare's sister ride again that's worth checking out and she's done quite a lot of kind of electronically electronic sounding and well with an electronic palette type music as well i'm just a fan of her work she's a good song very good songwriter and there's some very interesting stories about how stay was written which of course was number one in the UK for eight weeks. So here she is, Marcella Detroit. Hello. Hey, how are you going? Hey. Good to see you. How are you? What time of day is it for you? It's 9.31 a.m., Oh, I'm sorry for getting you up and interrupting your breakfast and all that. Yeah, I'm having my cereal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I correctly divined that. Um, how are you? How's everything? Where are you? More to the point. Mm. Excuse me. I'm in L.A. Right. Um, and, you know, okay, just been concentrating a lot on writing in the last, 18 months, I guess it is now. Yeah, shit, it's been hard work for everybody, hasn't it? It's kind of, you know, it's interesting. I've been listening to Mark Maron's po- uh, podcast, it, it, yeah, and uh, he's he's in L.A. as well. And oh. the thing about L.A. is it's, it's so spread out, isn't it? So, you know, I, I'm okay. I live in central London, so I bump into people all the time, and I've not really felt that isolation, but I think... In LA, it must have been a different experience. Oh yeah, completely. Um, just from the beginning, you know, we were terrified. Well, because we obviously had such a terrible leader, and oh, you yeah. know, you know, and the the fifty states, everyone had their own rules. I mean, we're lucky here in California because, you know, it was handled pretty well, though. Uh, I think it could have been better. Just just because the whole thing was so was so divided into, you know, what each state was mandating. It was really confusing. But we just, as soon as we got word to lock down, we were 
you know, we were happy to cooperate. Yeah, sure. I, I just did an interview with um, Tom Bailey from Thompson Twins, mm. and he's stuck in New Zealand, and they they are completely locked down. I mean, I think he was saying they're not even allowed out of the houses, you know. Really? Yeah, uh, they are really taking it. Well, at first, everyone was going, oh, they've got it. They've only got three cases, but then you've got to balance that up with the restriction of freedoms, really, uh, realistically, over time, because this shit isn't going to go away. Um, no. No, it's the new normal. Yeah, I'm afraid so. But uh, anyway, we're not here to talk about miserable things. We're here to talk about you. <laughs> and um, I'm pretty miserable, so. Uh, yeah, yeah well, it's okay. You know, we're all miserable from time to time. But um, what an amazing – I mean, I'll be doing a, a deep dive into your career and uh, listening to a lot of stuff which I missed the first time around. I mean, you're pretty impressive – you're pretty impressive in terms of the um, the amount of stuff you've done and the quality of it is quite something, you know. I mean, uh -huh. for instance, I've not heard the um, the Ride Again EP, which is just oh. great. Oh, yeah, you like it? Cool. Yeah. And, well, uh, uh, and um, Richard Hall is a friend of mine. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, he's from Sheffield as well. So um, did he co-write uh, some of these tunes or was it all you guys? It was just Siobhan and I. It's really good stuff. I mean, because it's in his – the reason I ask is because it's kind of similar to his style. And, right. Uh, and that's probably why um, – I don't know. Was it the record company who came up with the idea of Richard doing a duet with you, uh, you guys? Yeah, it was suggested that we get somebody in to do a duet with us. Um Quite frankly, I I wasn't familiar with Richard. Oh, his, uh, his stuff's great. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And when, when I was told about him, I was, uh, you know, of course, I, I checked out what he had done. And wow, amazing. And then Siobhan and I were invited to go to one of his shows um, in London while we were over there uh, getting ready to perform and uh, just blown away. Yeah, Long by him. His voice is so rich, and his guitar playing is amazing. Oh yeah, he's a he's a really talented dude. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. So, who produced the Ride Again stuff? Uh, Nick Lonnet. Right, and what? And uh, forgive me, I, I, I'm out of the loop a little bit. But is he has he done a lot of other um, famous stuff? Oh yeah, Nick has a rich history um producing a lot of rock and roll, like right. serious rock and roll. Oh god, who's that girl right now? There it's like a punk a current punk band. I can't remember her name, but I, I will Google it and send it to you. But they're amazing. I mean, he's worked with Iggy Pop. He right. he was actually the engineer when when I worked there at Clapton on the um when I joined his band again in 84, I believe it was the Behind the Sun album. He was the engineer for that project. Oh, and right. He told me, and that's how I knew we had met before, but I was trying to place where yeah, he was the yeah, engineer. Yeah. yeah, he was called in by Phil Collins because Phil was producing it. He was called in by Phil to do him a favor and engineer the album. And he's just He's just a you know master at what he does. He worked with um, Nick Cave, and that's just, what it sounds like. Right, yeah. right, right, right. 
And we even got Larry, um, Nick's drummer, to play on our songs, which was incredible. It's got that filmic quality, which I, I just think suits the combination of your voices really beautifully, actually. Yeah. And uh, Thank you. And how was it getting back together? Well, you know. Um, I mean, I, I know this is out of chronological order, but I just thought I'm just interested. No, that's fine. Well, initially it was very weird. Um, right. It was uncomfortable for me. Um, you know, I I was invited. It was just kind of a, a strange and, I don't know, fateful kind of situation where um, Siobhan's manager reached out to my husband asking if I would like to have a chat with him. And, um, I, well, that was really surprising because he contacted us out of the blue. It was in March of 2018. And apparently he got my husband's number because my husband and Siobhan had a, a clandestine meeting. Um, my husband, and I had no idea about this meeting. And this was uh, a few years before 2018 even to talk about, you know, my husband wanted to kind of surmise where she was at, if there was any chance of us meeting up and resolving our differences. Um, so he had my, my husband's number and uh, contacted him out of the blue back in March of 2018 and said, would Marcy be interested in, having a chat with me and possibly meeting up with Siobhan and, you know, settling their differences or whatever. Talk about maybe doing something together. Right, right. So, um, and then that happened finally in May of that year. And, you know, when I first met to the meeting, went to the meeting, I had, I didn't know what to expect really. Cause you know, we, it was qu quite acrimonious. <laughs> was I mean, it? I don't really want to dig into negative things, but yeah, uh, it, yeah, it was quite acrimonious. Um, and so I didn't know really what to expect, right. but um, we were able to um, explain and, and, and glean that, Oh, it, it was really a problem of there were too many people between us mm. giving us, you know, misinformation, not the proper information was being passed on. It was, unfortunately, it was not like her and I really got to have these conversations. It was always through managers. I had a different manager than oh, she had. <laughs> I had to at the time because her managers were not looking out for me. Oh, um, no. Like they left me stranded at hotels and having me pay for my own hotel bills. And what? yeah, it was crazy. So I thought, man, the only way I can do this if, if somebody is looking out for me. So uh, obviously that put a wedge between things. And, and I realized that, but it was really the only thing that I could do at the time to make sure that I was properly protected and communicated to and with. So, you know, we realized that that was a problem. The communication was a big problem. And, and that's what caused a lot of, um, you know. Problems, yeah. Faults, you know. It's like Fleetwood Mac all uh, traveling to the gigs in their own airplanes. You know? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite that bad. Um, we didn't have airplanes to go to gigs to. But, um, you, know, one, you know, once in a while uh, we might do, do things you know, on our own and stuff. Yeah, it was just very awkward. So I didn't know what to expect. And it was glad to clear up some misconceptions. Mm. 
No, exactly. That's not exactly how it was. As you can hear my side of the story and, and vice versa. I heard mm -hmm. her side of the story. So we were able to resolve those differences. And then it was suggested because I was going to England in in July of that year, and Siobhan was going to be there as well. I was going there to work with, with Eric Clapton again. I was joining him for the first time since 1985, wow. doing Live Aid. And um, you know, we did Live Aid in, in 85, and this yeah. was the first time I was invited to join Eric again after all that time to do the Hyde Park Summer Festival. And, and I was going to be there anyway doing a residency as well in London at this place called Boysdale. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I don't know. Is that what is that like a kind of members club or something? Yeah, it's in Canary, it Canary Wharf. Yeah. yeah. I have and, heard of it. Yeah. Right. Jules Holland is a, a patron of it and and sometimes he comes there and and you know sponsors the gigs and Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I was going to be there and um I met with Siobhan and my husband was was with us, who was involved in the initial initial Shakespeare sister music, because he had um, he had one of the first computers and and since it was called a Casio, and he sampled sounds for us that we used on things. And, and Siobhan and he, you know he knew he knew her, she knew him obviously. And um, so when we were at this meeting with Siobhan and her manager and my husband and I, Lance. Um, he was the one who suggested, why don't you guys try to write together? You know, see if you still have that magic, right? Right. Because um, initially we were talking about just doing maybe maybe a tour, you know. Yeah. So he suggested that, and we were pretty excited about that. A little, I was a little bit nervous because I didn't know what to expect. Um, but anyway, um, we love. We both realized that we um, we have a lot of things in common, really. We're both really strong women with, you know, serious opinions and drive. <laughs> good. And ideas of what we want. Well, it's good in some ways. And in other ways, it can cause problems. Hmm. Um, but um, anyway, so we... We, we realized that we both loved the desert. I love Joshua Tree and, and hanging out in the desert here in Southern California. So we made a plan to go write. After we got back from London, it was October of that year. And we went to this Airbnb and uh, and we wrote, like the first song we, we wrote was our first single, All really? the Queen's Horse. Yeah, oh, I, I brought my, Oh, thank you. Thanks. I brought my laptop. We went out into the desert. I brought all my equipment, you know, for my little portable studio, and we recorded everything. And then Siobhan played it for um, Nick Lanay, and um, he really loved it, and um, used a lot, a lot of the files that I created for on the demos, and and kind of dropped those into when we actually did the recording. So. Yeah, that was the first time we wrote, and then we, you know, we kept writing. We had did another, <laughs> and we wrote. I think about like five songs for an EP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I really, I, re I really, um, it's it's just a beautiful piece of work. I think you should be very proud of it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, not that my opinion means anything, but I'm just saying well, I've only just heard it, it, so it's fresh to me. So uh, yeah. that's why I'm saying it now. Um, 
So let's just go back to the start, really. And and how how on earth did you end up, you know, <laughs> co-writing "Lay Down Sally" with Eric Clapton at such <laughs> a tender age? Right. Um, I don't know. Call I mean, it, it sounds like a very grown-up song. You know, it sounds like well, the work of a mature songwriter. Right. And at that point, um, well, okay, let me tell you how that came about, and I'll try to, to make it short because it is a little bit of a long story. But when I decided to get into music and, and make that my focus, I was going to college, and my, my major was art, my minor was music, and I also was interested in sociology. But I found um, I, I quit because I found music was much more immediately gratifying to me, and and, you know, I would, for example, I'd sit in my room and play my guitar for like an hour. And then whenever I was feeling really emotional or, or it was all too much, I'd, I'd play and sing and feel better. I was in this park in the Detroit area at 18 and I was singing and playing. And I remember looking up at the sky and saying, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And oh. I just made that decision. I can still see it. I can picture it. I made that decision. And, and that's how it started. I was in a band, a lot of bands in Detroit, and I ended up in a band called Julia. And we opened our, the pinnacle of our, you know, my participation in that band was we opened for David Bowie in, yeah. in 72. And then we were discovered by, um, by Bob Seeger's manager this guy named Punch Andrews. And um, he, he asked us to audition for Bob. So we did. And he kept all of this band. Um, we toured for several months. Then he fired the rhythm section and he hired these guys from Tulsa, Oklahoma named Jamie Oldacre on drums and Dick Sims on keyboards. Dick kicked bass on the Hammond, you know, so we didn't need a bass player. He was incredible. <laughs> right. So then after that, that kind of, you know, incarnation of, of Bob's band, after that was over, they invited me to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And people were like, Tulsa, Oklahoma, why? Yeah. Why? Because Tulsa was a music mecca. Leon okay. Russell, for one, yes. the wrecking crew, um, was there. And there was Shelter Records. That, that was his company with Denny Cordell. And um, so I, I jumped on that opportunity. I was inspired by Leon Russell's backing mm -hmm. singers. You know, when he used to tour with Mad Dogs and Englishmen, he was the musical director. He did his he did his own tours, and I'd go see him every time he came to Detroit. I loved Claudia Lanier and Kathy McDonald and um, you know Rita Coolidge and Bonnie Bramlett. I loved them all. So um, I moved to Tulsa, and we started a band, and we were the big fish in the little pond. I mean, everybody used to come and see us play, like. The Gap Band and J.J. Kale. Oh, and the Gap Band. Band. Oh, my God. Right? And then Leon Russell himself. Leon Russell came to see us um, and ended up wanting to hire me to be in his band. I also thought I was in love with him. So we were in a relationship for a minute. But I... Me and Jamie Oldake were hired to be in Leon's band, but Jamie left because what happened was Carl Radel of Derek and the Dominoes um, got a call from Eric after his he took a sabbatical from music because of his you know drug abuse problems. He called Carl and said, "I want to go back on the road." And Carl and I'm looking for a band. And Carl said, "Come and check these guys out," which was us, right? So 
Eric came to Tulsa and he came to this gig that we were doing and um, sat in with us and wanted to hire us all. But I already committed to working with Leon and there was no way I was not going to do that. Right, right, right. I also got to be that girl in the show that got to do a solo spot. And that was like a dream to me. If you told me when I started on my journey, you will be that girl. I never spotlight, the girl in the spotlight. how, How old were you then? Uh, let's see. It was in 74, so I was 22. Perfect. Perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. So after that ended, um, well, all the, the guys, though, Jamie and the whole band and Carl went off to join Eric, and they did the, the 461 Ocean Boulevard album. Oh. And after that, right after that um, tour and after my tour with Leon ended and my relationship, Um, I joined my, they invited me to come down to Jamaica where they were recording. There's one in every crowd. And, and then a terrible chore for you. Oh, it was so (laughs) bad. Martin. I mean, like how horrible to get a call from, you know, from Carl and, and my friends say, Hey, come down to Jamaica and, uh, and sing on this record. I was like, yeah. well, let me see what I have on my schedule, if I can make it. Can I ask you, um, just to interrupt you for a sec, were you aware that you had a special voice at that point? I mean, or was it like you you were, you were needed the confidence of – you wouldn't have considered going solo at that point, would you? You know, it was always my aspiration to be to do yeah. my own thing. Um. Um, but yeah, you know, I used, like I said, I, I, I sang because I loved it and it made me feel good to have this expression. It's kind of like a release, yeah. you know, and I enjoyed that release. And then to see that people enjoyed it, I thought, oh, well, that's great. You know, and when I first started doing music, it was not about, it wasn't about, oh, I, I got to make some money, yeah. you know, and I got to be famous. No, it was just about. I love music so much and I have since I was a child. So it just, it was a natural thing, but then it became a means to an end because I started like, wow, you can do this and you can make money too. You can do something. Unlike today, of course. (laughs) Well, unlike today. (laughs) Unless you're performing live. That's about it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So just rewinding a little bit from then, Mm. did you have musical training when you were um, growing up? Yes. Um, well, first of all, my father and I used to sing a lot together. I loved harmonizing. So right. he and I, he, there was always music going on in our house. And my father played the ukulele and he taught me how to play. But as soon as, soon as I went to school, um, when, I, when I started school at five years old, I was always in choirs, chorus. I started playing an instrument when I was seven. Um, that was the violin. And and then I went on to guitar. My father bought me uh, a 12-string guitar. Then he bought me an electric guitar and a little oh, amplifier. Great. How old were you then? 11. Oh, there you go. Getting early. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I had been involved, you know, playing the violin from the time I was um, 7 till 12. And then I gave up because it, it got too difficult. And it just sounded like shit. So I just, you know, was not tenacious with it i didn't you know pursue it but i got more involved in guitar and and rock and roll i mean i grew up in motown in in detroit yeah listen you're not gonna right? knock that stuff are you so no you're surrounded and I love, 
Yeah. Huh? Yeah, I was surrounded by it. It was in school. It was ubiquitous. I mean, everywhere you went, you turn on the radio, there was, you know, Stevie Wonder, there was Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye. I mean, the Temptations, you name it. Heavily influenced by that. But I also, and I love the Beatles when they came out. I got to see the Beatles when I was 12, when they came to the States. Wow. Yeah. So you were playing, you I was in the audience and I. All like British invasion stuff then and Herman's Hermits and. Oh, I was just wide eyed and just (laughs) soaking it up, man. I loved every second of it. My father and mother, they they loved the Beatles too. I bought, you know, bought all their albums. And and like I said, I got to see them. And I remember the concert and there were these 15,000 screaming girls. And I was sitting there going, shut up. I just want to hear them. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it was an amazing experience. It would have been great if I could have heard what they were playing actually, but <laughs> to me, they were, they were so iconic in so many ways. Um, and I, I stayed a fan. And at that point, if you would have told me, well, you'll be staying in George Harrison's house one day recording an album. Wow. I would have, no way. So let's go back no. to the, um, so, you know, you're the girl in the spotlight on, on tour yeah. and everything's going well and then you get invited to Jamaica. And let's yeah. pick the story up from there. So what, what happens next? Right. So I go to Jamaica, um, end up singing on about five songs, five or six songs on the album. And then Eric says to me a few days later after doing that, he said, would you like to be in the band? And I'm like, uh, let me think about uh, that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so then we, then it was, um, there was some, I did some writing, like I submitted, we submitted a song for the next album, the No Reason to Cry album. There was a song called Hungry um, that I wrote with Dick Sims and, um, and Eric liked it. So that was on the album. Um, and also Eric and I wrote a song together on that album called Innocent Times. In fact, there's a line in it called, um, with no freedom to laugh, there's more reason to cry. Those are my lyrics. And Eric called the album, No Reason to Cry. Oh, I see. Which was interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, but the, um, that, yeah, that sorry, was, I was going to say the good thing about, getting into the writing world is all of a sudden you've got money coming in that's not necessarily associated with performing live. You know, so you've got like an income, a default income coming in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was great. But um, one bad part about it was is they insisted on keeping my publishing. So I only – yeah. They made me sign something, and they said, if you don't sign away, you're publishing to us. His manager, and I'm sure he was aware of it, um, if you don't sign your publishing, give us your publishing for anything you do with Eric, then um, we won't put your song on the record. Oh, excuse my language. I was going to swear then. That's absolutely outrageous. Right? So, and I wasn't really completely aware of what I was signing, Um because I was really, I was really young and you know green around the gills, but um, I I had to, even though I know I consulted with a lawyer and 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 um, he said, well, you know, they say if you're not gonna, if you don't sign it, then you're 
record, your song won't be on the album. That's outrageous. I was like, okay. And that happened with every song I did with Eric. But the great news was, is, is then upon being seen as a bonafide, you know, mm-hmm. writer, when I started working with Eric, that was, that was the great part about it. Yeah. Um, and I was very <laughs> grateful. Did you, not, did you not get any, do you not get any royalties from Lay Down Sally? Yes, I do. I get I get um, writer share and I get my mechanicals for being All in the right. band because they were generous and they gave us um, points for being in the band. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, so it's not all terrible. So no, it's not all terrible. But it was just you know the publishing thing. I was a bit. Oh. Um, yeah, that would have been like double the money that I got. No, at least yeah. And you'd have right? been, yeah, you'd have been, you'd have had houses all over the world and be flying to your own gigs in aircraft. <laughs> yes, Martin, I'll have to join you in yours. Oh uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's good. So, so move, moving on, then you're a respected songwriter, right? And uh, yeah, then then it became like, and you asked about Lay Down Sally, how that came yeah. about. Well, yeah, yeah. we were in London recording what would become the Slow Hand album. And that was in 1977. And and Eric said to me, hey, Marcy, I want to write a song called Lay Down Sally. So I picked up a guitar. I like titles. Yeah. I don't know if, if you write like that, but I love titles. They, yeah, I generally is, get a title first and then write a, write a song from yeah. Right, a title that you can really get a you know has some kind of juicy something that really inspires you that you you feel like you can tap into some kind of vein that is going to give you a lot of inspiration right so um i don't know we were really into little feet back then and bo diddley you know second line kind of new orleans stuff and um i just picked up a guitar and it was a whole different groove yeah when the song first started it was uh it was more like a bump, 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 bump. And I started playing, I started singing Lay Down Sally, that melody. I don't know where it came from. You know, sometimes you just pull them out of the air. Yeah. I don't, you're like a vehicle for, you know, <laughs> with this transition yeah. going through yeah. you, right? So that's how it started. And um, and then we worked on it all day. The band was there. We were all in the, we were in the studio, you know, in those days. It wasn't like you brought the, the music all prepared and ready to the studio. Sorry, you do. Yeah, you just kind of work things out in the studio. Yeah, that's what we did. That's what we did. Um, so Glenn Johns was producing, and and we it was about five hours. We were working on the song that way. You know, we had the chorus all written. Uh, George Terry and Eric and I, and the band were just kind of hanging around. Then the keyboard player Dick got bored, and he left to go back to to the hotel or whatever. And then um, we, we couldn't really come up with a verse that sounded good. It just, it didn't sound right. And then all of a sudden Eric starts playing that iconic groove, yeah, yeah. you know, like the kale kind of groove yeah, yeah. and, um, and it's sounding great. And the, the, the chorus really worked with that, but there was no verse um, really no, no uh, melody or lyric for it. So Glenn was like, okay, everybody, we got to record this now. It's sounding great. So get behind your instruments and, and um, I'm going to press record. So we all did. I got behind the piano. If you listen, the piano part is really, (laughs) it's so simplistic. I was, I'm not really a great 
pianist, but I came up with a, a simple part that worked and everybody, um, you know, played their really cool bits and, um, it was recorded and Eric uh, said to me, okay, go back to the hotel tonight and write the lyric and the melody for the verses. So I did, um, came back the next day and then we recorded our vocals. And then several months later, it started climbing the charts. It ended up getting to number four in the billboard charts and went gold. Amazing. We were all like, oh, really surprised. So, so from that point, right, you've got a big hit. Eric's mm -hmm. going, hold on, we've got to pin this girl down uh, and make sure <laughs> that she's part of it all. Um, and so what happened after that? And, uh, you know, did did you write, I mean, were there any further big hits in the US charts? You know, on that album, I wrote another song called The Core, which was a really, really popular AOR hit right. that was played on FM radio a lot. And um, I love that song and, and people really are really love that song and always comment to me how much they love it. It was the same kind of thing. It was like a jam thing. And, um, and I got an idea for, for, you know, the title and what I wanted it to be about. It's about being alive and feeling really vital and, yeah. you know, just wanting to really live life to the fullest and feel everything. Um, so uh, in total, I wrote about eight songs with and or for Eric. Um, at, let's see, we toured for the Slow Hand album. We toured all over the world. And, and about a year later, well, actually, it was in 79. It came out in, in 77. And uh, in about 79, um, I was... Without my knowledge, I was let go from the band. I was fired. Shit. Um, yeah, I was fired. And a friend of mine called me from London and said, hey, hey, Marcy, <laughs> did you know you're no longer in the band? I'm like, what? I'm no longer, what What happened? Oh, he said, yeah, I just read an article in the um, Melody Maker magazine that you're no longer in the band. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And and what happened, <laughs> what happened was, um, because, well, this is kind of personal information, and, and I probably shouldn't say it, so I won't. I won't really in detail. But I'm, I commented on something Eric was doing um, with a friend of mine, and he didn't like it. And oh, that was it. I knew right. I was fired. Yeah. Okay. But um, okay, that was okay because I was already in that band for five years, and and a friend of mine suggested move to LA, you know, that's where you should get out of Tulsa. It's like, you've done as much as you can do there. Yeah, yeah. So move to LA. And then I moved to LA and then the door, the session work doors completely opened up for me. And it by this time, yeah, by this time, presumably your voice had matured a little and it's like, suddenly you're realizing the power that you had at your disposal. Cause you have a fantastic voice. There's no doubt about it. And, um, and it, the interesting thing, what what I've noticed listening to different periods of your voice, is it still has this wonderful kind of um, youthful quality, even mm. even right up to the current current day. But it's kind of matured in terms of its articulation. Um, 
I mean, you know, I've worked with a lot of very famous, you know, Tina, obviously, I work with, and all, you know, lots. And I've worked with, you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, Shaka Khan and yeah, various other people. So I, I kind of specialise in female voice production. Um, yeah. It's a pity that I've never had a chance to do anything with you because I really love your voice, basically. Uh, yeah, I would have loved to have worked with you uh, as well. Well, maybe one day. Who knows? Maybe one day we will. Record companies don't generally give you the money to do things nowadays. Anyway, yeah, I know. That's I know. the problem. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so you went to LA, and you suddenly you're writing for a lot of people and getting session work and yeah and stuff. And then, so how, where, what year are we in now, roughly? I moved to LA in '78. '78. Wow, yeah. and so and and so you did that for how long? For how many years were you in? We there? Ah, uh, well, well, I I started doing session work that year. I was introduced to this amazing engineer Umberto Gatica, who was David Foster's right hand man, and I was introduced to David Foster and like never stopped working with some of the best producers wow. of all time. Like David, and you know, he he was hired to do an album on me. We did four or five tracks, and it was the the label RSO didn't like it. It was a little bit too slick. Right. Um, they were expecting something a little more rock and roll, you know, right. from right. Eric, something more in that vein. Even though the songs were were kind of like that, but uh, I guess it was just a little too slick for them. And um, but then I went on to work with. I worked with David some more, even though, you know, the album was was rejected. But he called me to do loads of work, like with um, Alice Cooper and and ha Daryl Hall, you know, Hall and Oates. Oh, and, fantastic! And, did you know, did you sing yeah. on any of their hits? The Not on any of their hits. No, more obscure stuff. Right. But I did a I did a lot of sessions with Daryl and also with Bill Champlin from right. Chicago and Sons of Champlin. And oh, then I, I started. Stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, Me too. Yeah. It's like part of part of the stuff that formulated who yeah. I was as a you know as a, a listener as a, as an artist as well. Um. Yeah, and then I started working with other with some other fantastic producers like Arif Mardin, who is oh, one Arif, of my favorites to work. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, what a producer! He produced um, Scrutability, didn't he? As well, um, he, uh, I met him in New York. Actually, really, really sweet guy and super talented. God. Yeah, yeah, really talented. Yeah, really cool. And uh, it says that I've been looking at your thing, and it says you work with Robin Gibb as well. Is that right? Sorry, Robin Gibb. Yeah, yeah. Well, that all came about through the RSO connection. You know, Eric—that's the label was signed. The yeah, label was signed to Robert Stigwood, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, even though my record didn't come out, Robert was still trying to help me, and he put me together. In fact, that's the name of the song. <laughs> so funny that i said that it must have been a subconscious thing yeah. that's um he put me together with with robin um to see if he could you know write a hit for me and robin wrote a do for us called help me which was in his times square movie um so i went to work with robin on that um we did a duet i came to london we did a video for it and um i don't it didn't you know it didn't like 
you know, break any, you know, chart history or anything, but what an honor to work with Robin because he was so amazing. And then he, you know, then he called me to, to do a duet with Jimmy Ruffin because he was producing an album with Jimmy Ruffin. You did? I wrote, we wrote a song uh, for, uh, that he sang for us called The Foolish Thing to Do. It was on. Um, it was kind of mid eighties. It, it came out as a separate single away from an album uh, called "The Foolish Thing to Do." Oh. And he also did a. We did a cover version with M Seventeen. Uh, we also did a cover version of "My Sensitivity." You know the uh, the beautiful uh, Luther Vandross song. I don't know if you oh know. yeah! And uh, what a voice! Yeah, Jimmy's an interesting character. God damn, he <laughs> he can sing. But he's got a big chip yeah. on his shoulder about his brother. Oh, he did. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And, uh, I didn't. I didn't really get any of that. Um, I didn't really talk to him much about anything personal. But you spent more time with him than you would know. Yeah. I mean, all we did. You know, I did this duet with him, and it was it was really great and an honor too. Because what becomes of the brokenhearted was one of my favorite songs of my youth. What a great yeah. song! <laughs> it's like everything. Yeah. Those you know, chords, the changes, yeah. like crazy. He told so me so inspiring. The, yeah. um, he told me the story that. Tell that, me the story. Yeah, that um, you know they all used to hang around the Motown um, studios and stuff, and um, you know people would pop in and out, and it was like a big kind of family vibe, and uh, they'd just written mm-hmm. what becomes of the brokenhearted for Dinah Ross. And she was just not around and people couldn't contact her. He just happened to be in the studio when Dinah Ross couldn't make the recording. It was written for her. And so he just said, do you mind if I have a crack at this? Well, we've got the orchestra, we've got whatever it is, the musicians. Just go and have a go. That's fate, right? So. Wow. Yeah. So and it was a huge, huge hit for him, right? Massive, massive. Um, so let's move on because we're running out of time. Oh, so, I mean, I could talk to you yeah. all day. Um, let's move yeah. on to, um, let's fast forward a bit to Shakespeare's sister, how it kind of initiated. Tell us about that. How did it happen? Yeah. Um, well, you know, like I said, I was doing a lot of session work um, and I was working a lot also with, with this friend of mine, Richard Feldman, who was from Tulsa. And was a great writer and musician himself. Um, one day he noticed he was getting new neighbors, like a suburb of L.A., and he went to introduce himself, and it was Siobhan and Dave <laughs> Stewart. Right. <laughs> and uh, he befriended them. He said, hey, look, you know, I've got a, I got a studio in my house, and if you guys ever want to do anything, um, let me know. So then he starts becoming more friendly with them and and tells me that he's going to be doing some writing with Siobhan because she's thinking about leaving Bananarama. She has an idea for what she wants to do. Um, and it's called Shakespeare's Sister. She got the name from a Smith song and, and uh, they started working together and he called me and said, maybe you this might be good for you. You should come and, and uh, write with us one day, see if it's a good fit. I think your voices would work really well together. Yeah. Um, and really complement each other. And yeah. you can come and play, you know, whatever you want to and sing and write with us. So I did that. And um, 
after a while, it was like, wow, this, we've tried a few songs and like Break My Heart, I think was one of the first one. Could You Be Loved, which was a um, Whalers, Bob Marley and Whalers cover. And the, the label liked it. And so then we just went over to England to do more writing. And, and he called me after a few weeks and said, hey, you should come over here and join us to do some writing with us. I'm like, okay. I went over. And uh, yeah, that was really it. You know, that was me being in the band, not officially. I was I was more of a hired hand still, but um, my contribution, you know, by the time we got to doing Your History, which was, we wrote at the 11th hour because the label still didn't hear a single, you know, that old uh, chestnut. That one. Single yet. So we, we were in New York and um, and we got we put all our heads together. We got Pat Seymour from the Eurythmics helping us and Richard and Siobhan and I, and we we're in this room and we came up with, we just kind of started hammering out ideas. Okay, what about this? Let's spend a few minutes on each one. You're going to think of the best ideas you can. And then your history came about and everybody was like, that's the one. The label right. loved it. And that was the big single from the Sacred Heart album. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then my role became more, more integral to the band. So, um when we started the second album, I was asked to be a 50% member. Oh, great. So, yeah. That's more like it. Right. Yeah. So, um, and then, of course, Stay. Yeah. It's your uh, absolutely stellar moment. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was n number one for eight weeks, right, in the UK. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, obviously, the video sold it incredibly well, right? Mm. Uh, but you looked amazing on it. You sounded amazing. It was a very poignant kind of simple story, and it had a oh, – it was just a great idea. The whole thing worked so beautifully, didn't it? And mm. uh, that kind of darker thing with Siobhan and, you know, and the, the, the kind that kind of looked like an out, uh, somebody who should have been in, in Ridley Scott's legend, you know, as, <laughs> as the wife of the devil or something. And um, – <laughs> She did that really well. Yeah, she certainly did. She knocked that one out of the park, I think. Oh um, yeah. But you were both great both great in that and I, I think it was it you know, it's hard to imagine it without the video, but it's mm. such a beautiful song that and and the and the Thank contrast you. between the darker kind of heavier drum part and the and the lighter uh, thing embodied by your voice is so affecting and then the kind of stratospheric um, high high soprano bits and uh, you know it just all works, you know. And uh, I, I'm a big fan of that song. And I know that it's not a coincidence it was number one for so long. Let, let's put it that way. How did you did you know it was going to be a big hit? Well, actually, you know, when Siobhan and I started writing for that album, it was going to be it was a concept album. We were we were introduced to this film by by Dave. He said, "Check out this film. It's uh, it's called Cat Women from the Moon, and it, you can watch it on YouTube now. It's only an hour long, but it's like a 1950s cheesy B sci-fi movie. Right. And we were going to try to buy the rights to the film and superimpose ourselves into it, but that proved to be a bit costly. So we still use the film as inspiration for a lot of the songs. And in, in Siobhan and I, you know, had written several songs and." 
And they used to have these parties, these great parties, like where, you know, you'd see Timothy Leary walking around and Roy Orbison and George Harrison and Tom Petty. I mean, everybody would come to these parties and and always at the end, we'd, we'd all sing, we'd all jam, right? Right, right. So I used to sing some some beautiful ballads. And while we were in the middle of writing this album, it was on a Sunday morning at about 9.30 a.m. and and somebody comes, you know, banging on the door and, and my husband comes to wake me up and he goes, Dave and Siobhan are here and Dave wants to talk to you about something. And so I get up um, and we go into my little studio and he says, you know how you always sing these beautiful ballads um, at, the, at our parties? Well, I think we should model a song for you that will feature you on the album. I'm like, okay. And he had this whole idea. Good idea. He, he had the first verse, um, you know, the whole first verse, you know, if this world is wearing thin, you're thin of your thinking of escape, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you try to go alone, don't think I'll understand and got to the course. And that's where he stopped. And I, I don't know. I just started singing, stay with me, stay with me. It just was just like wow. a really natural thing that happened like right in the moment. And so we worked on that, and then we wrote the second verse, and then then it was like, well, we need to write a uh, middle eight for Siobhan. So we did that. Um, you know, after Siobhan and I finished writing the song, and I recorded it in my little home studio. We took it over to um, Dave's and Siobhan's place, and Chris Thomas, the producer, was there because he was producing Dave's Spiritual Cowboys album. And we were everybody was having dinner. We popped. They said, oh, let's hear what you guys are working on. So we popped in the cassette and Stay came on. And Chris, afterwards, he jumped up. He slammed the table. Number one smash. And we're like, <laughs> he was right. <"What? laughs> really? We didn't. Uh, I certainly didn't get it. Um, no, I, I was really, really surprised. Um, and he ended up. You know, producing the out al- that song. He didn't produce the album, but he produced that song because there was, and the song went through many. You know, sometimes you have a song, you feel like it's not as good as it could be, or it needs some changes. So it went through several incarnations, um, but it, but in the end, Chris was like, "I love the first version I heard. I want that. I want that vocal. I want those background vocals." And so. You know, in those days, we didn't have the technology to just be able to send sound files through the internet. Yeah, that's right. We had, yeah. Like, you know, I, we I had to send. I just had a little Fostex eight track, and I just sent everything over um, to London where he was working on on the album. Incidentally, we recorded the album at George Harrison's studio, um, in at Henley on on Thames at oh, his nice. home studio, which was. An amazing experience, yeah. truly experience. But um, Chris wanted those vocals. Um, you can hear at the end how my vocal starts drifting off, you know, because it really didn't have MIDI quite down yeah. yet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, that was like in 91. We didn't quite have it down yet. So it, it started starts to drift at the end. But he put that vocal in and he put the the backing vocals in and uh, he did a fantastic job. Producing oh, it sounds it. great. It sounds great. Yeah. You sound great. Siobhan sounds great. Thank Everything's you. great about it. But um, yeah. Who, so whose idea was the video and the, and the narrative for that? 
Good question. Um, well, you said you couldn't imagine the the song without the video, which is interesting. Nobody could come up with an idea for the video. Um, even our our gifted, wonderful, you know, you know, award winning friend Sophie Muller, who did all of our videos, she couldn't come up with idea an idea. My husband also a videographer as well as a musician. He had his own company in London. He was trying to get it off the ground. It was called Talent Bank. Um, and he came up with an idea for it. He came up with the idea that, well, first of all, just a little bit of the story. In the movie, we are cat women of the, on the moon. These earthlings come to visit. My character in this scene falls in love with an earth, earthling and says, you know, begs him to stay with her. Okay. So Lance comes up with this idea. We have a meeting with Sophie. We say, come over, Sophie, and, and check this idea out. So he tells her the idea. Marcy is singing to this, this man that she loves, and he's about to die. And Siobhan is the angel of death that comes at his weakest point and tries to take him away. That was his idea, and he was also right. um, the first AD in the first assistant director on the shoot, which was great. And then Sophie, you know, added, uh, made it look all, all, you know, relevant by having us be on this spaceship um, yeah, yeah. on the moon. And you can see the moonscape in the background yeah. and the, and the, you know, um, what do you call it? Comet, comets going by and all that stuff. Yeah. So she did that in her own superlative in, in inimitable way. And um, yeah, that was it. His idea, and it worked really, really well. A great idea. I, I often thought, because you saw it every week on top of the box, right? So it gets, it gets embedded <laughs> in your head. I often thought, is it from a film? I mean, I mean, or you know, is it going to be from a film? Or, you know, like at that mm. point in uh, in the eighties, in particular, uh, they used to do stuff that would just kind of appear in films. You know, where there'd be a kind of song just appear out of nowhere and then they'd go back to the plot. And I thought, oh, it'd be great, wouldn't it? You could write an entire film around mm. that anyway. <laughs> be good. Yeah, well, it was sort of a film within, you know, within the concept of the album. It was a film unto itself, I guess you could say. Yeah. Okay, we're down to the, coming to the end, but I always ask people stupid questions at the end, like, it's kind of a smash hits thing, um, and uh, I don't give any. I don't give anyone kind of advance warning because I like the spontaneity of the answers. So, um, so, uh, so what's your favourite film? Ooh, uh, one of them. You know, it didn't have to be a definitive. I'm not not going to hold you to it. One of them. God, that's hard. Um, there must be a film that you, that you go back to from time to time and derive something new from it. Maybe. Yeah, there. But there are many. Um, I loved American Beauty. Yeah, that really sticks out to me. It's a great, um, great film. Yeah, of course. I always loved The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. How many <laughs> times have we seen that shit? <laughs> I Good saw it every year when I was growing every up. Every Christmas, every home. Easter, every bank holiday. Um, favorite book. Favorite book. Mm. I I love this book called Love in the Time of Cholera. That's a about, great book. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah, 
unrequited love. It's yeah. just you're a romantic, aren't you? I can tell. I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh shucks. Um, oh. Uh, TV uh, program. It can be um, a vintage one, or it can be current, or a box set, or whatever you want. You know what? My husband's British, um, and we love British um, cop shows. <laughs> really? We are obsessed. Yeah. I love Line of Duty. Yeah, it's good. Line of Duty. Good Lord. That's been the biggest mm. hit on TV in the UK. Yeah, probably for the last 10 years. Yeah. I also love Luther as well. Luther was great. Luther was good, yeah. What about old cop shows? Any of those? Old ones? Old cop shows? Yeah. You know, like there were um, some 1970s ones like uh, Callan and, uh, oh, God, there were some amazing ones. We love some British ones. Yeah, we love some British ones, some older ones. There's one called, um, I think it was Morse or Endeavour. Endeavour, yeah, Morse as well. Morse. We love that. Yeah, okay. Uh, who's your favourite other musical artist? Mm. Or composer. What, like, huh? Or composer. Or composer. Mm. Stevie Wonder has never ceased to amaze me. Yeah. Um, I love everything he's done. Um, yeah, he's one of my favourites for sure. Have you seen that documentary that's just come out called Summer of Soul? Yes. Oh, my God. I love oh, that. I was weeping. It was so beautiful. God. Me too. Yeah. Nina Simone in that oh, was my like God. unbelievable. Wasn't she? I get chills yeah. thinking about it. She was. I saw. I mean, I was lucky enough to see her perform at Ronnie Scott's. And, mm. uh, oh, really? But t kind of towards the end of her career, when she was crotchety, you know, really. Crotchety. Yeah, a bit, a bit militant. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and all that. Anyway, understandably, it was great. It was yeah. great. Um, uh, favorite visual artist. Oh. Um, or, or conceptual, uh, you know, artist. Um, well, Van Gogh has always been one of my favorites. Yeah, beautiful. Okay. Um, which of your own work are you most proud of? Mm. I did a song on my Jewel album that Chris Thomas produced called The Art of Melancholy, which I love. I'm really proud of it. I listen to it, yeah. It's beautiful. Because it's it's really unusual and and I love I love the lyric uh, of it and um the structure of it. Yeah. And finally uh well not finally first of all before I say the final one um is uh, you are bringing out a like a retrospective set of your work, aren't you? Well, no, it's not a retrospective. It's actually a new album. Like during the lock during lockdown, I wrote about seventy songs. Oh, sure. And yeah, and and it was really the only way to deal with you know what was going on in the outside world to just to be creative and focused. And then after culling them, I realized, well, I have I have at least an album here. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we've been working on that feverishly to get that done, and uh, we're we're like taking pre-orders on that now. So. 
excuse me, just finishing it up and, and mixing it and, and getting it done. Yeah, it's called That's on your On your website, right? Yeah, you can order it through there, marcelladetroit.rocks. And it's, it's rocks. That rocks, baby. <laughs> yeah, my husband found he he loves finding all these interesting URLs, and he found that one. I'm like, that's that's okay. good actually. Yeah, that's a good and one. Finally, what's your favorite synth? My favorite synth. Yeah. Ooh. Kind of keeps it on message for the whole electronically yours thing. That's why. That's yeah. Why I right. I mean, you must have used a few in your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have my, I still have my DX7, right? Um, and I still use that for my my controller, which is great. But I don't know, uh, you know, it has really kind of stock sounds in it. Yeah. But, but um, it's been a great MIDI controller. But um, one that has always mesmerized me, and I never really spent much time with, was the Synclavier. Yeah, they were good, weren't they? And and they were uh, when it first came out, it blew my mind because for the first time, um, I could do a string section that actually sounded like a string section. You know, wow. with uh, with um, uh, detaché kind of stuff and pizzicatos that actually sounded real when you played them. I'm going, Jesus! Wow. Of course, it's like common as muck now, but at that point, it was an amazing thing, right? But so that's your choice, yeah. Yeah. Good. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. And My um, pleasure. we hopefully will meet um, in human form at some point. That'd be a lovely thing. So if, you, if you're if you ever in town, um, yeah. please let me know. And um, you never know. We could meet up and maybe you could come, come to one of our shows or I could come to one of yours or... Oh, we could just go and have a pint, you know. <laughs> That'd be great. I'd love that. Hope to get over there sometime when things are a bit more calm and it'll be it'll be it'll improve. It'll improve. All right, darling, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Great to talk you. to you, Martin. All right, cheers. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Marcy Detroit and she is a lovely person and it was a pleasure talking to her in her home in LA. Um, I've never actually met her in the flesh and I'm hoping that we will do at some point in the not too distant future. Um, as I mentioned in the uh, in the discussion we had, I kind of historically as a producer have specialised in working with female, top female voices, you know, Tina Turner, Shaka Khan, uh, Mavis Staples, etc, etc. And uh, I've always admired her voice. It's a different kind of voice for me, but I, I would, I've got a suspicion it would work really well with electronic music. So, <clears throat> yeah, who knows, one day it might happen. Um, how is everyone? Um, I'm doing okay, I think. Um, still a bit up and down like everybody, but um, things are working out, I hope. Um, big warm welcome to our new sponsors, SJM Concerts, Simon Moran. They are one of Britain's leading promoters. They also promote our, our tours generally. They represent people like uh, 
Take that, Spice Girls, Foo Fighters, Coldplay, Stormzy, Muse, Robbie Williams, Peter Kay, Billie Eilish, Adele, The Killers, Arctic Monkeys, Little Mix, amongst many others. Um, we are thrilled to be associated with them and I can't think of a better sponsor for us. So thank you very much for your help in keeping this podcast going. Time for some more emails. Andrew Spears. Hi, Martin. Just a quick line to say how much I love your podcast. Listen to the hooky one. Cannot wait for the second part. The range of guests is amazing. Love the Nile Rogers one. What a legend that man is. Um, blah, blah, blah. Suggestions. Claire Grogan and Dudley. Um, Nicholas Bracegirdle from Chicane. Oh, that's a good idea. I like Chicane. BT. I like um, BT. Brian Transo as well. And, yeah, all good ideas, actually. I'll put them on the list. Paolo X. Dear Martin, here I am again, just finished listening to Peter Hook podcast. It was effing brilliant. Thank you. I think this should not only be a part two, but parts three, four and five. I'd also like to suggest for future podcasts, Fernando Saunders, another interesting interview might be Robin with a Y. I don't know who... Fernando Saunders is, I'm afraid. Best regards from a cold and rainy autumnal Curitiba in Brazil. Thank you. Hi, Martin. Loving the podcast. Oh, sorry. This is Gary Westoff. Uh, loving the podcast. The guests are great. I've seen Heaven 17 a few times and BMF a number of times at Rewind North. Fantastic shows with excellent guest singers. I think he means British Electric Foundation. Just bought, just bought my brother Hem17 VIP tickets, blah, blah, blah. Uh, just wanted to say love the podcast. Thank you. Fran Bragg. Hi, Martin. I had a slightly left-field thought for a guest the other day while watching the snooker. Steve Davis. He spends a lot of time now DJing and is a very keen music fan. I know that, actually. He was an enormous fan of Magma. In fact, he got them back together and I went to see Magma in the 70s at City Hall in Sheffield. His favourite band is a French prog band called Magma. Yeah, uh, even booked for personal performance at the height of his snooker fame. Um, yeah, interesting. It's not going to happen, but interesting. Email me um, electronicallymartin at gmail.com. And consider subscribing to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash electronicallyhours, which would help support the making of these podcasts if you're enjoying them. And it's a bit of a community vibe going on there as well, and you can um, ultimately get a bit more close contact and talk to me on email and maybe even on Zoom at some point in the future. So that's it for this week. Hope you tune in again next week. I shall speak to you then. Bye.